Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So it was early in the morning, and my wife and I were driving to the airport to go visit some family. We were taking this back road. It's kind of foggy outside because it was still really, really early. And for a long time, because my wife grew up in Pittsburgh, so she didn't see a whole lot of uh, farm animals in their natural habitat. So for years in our marriage, whenever we would drive past like a cow, she would moo at it, which was Awesome and really unexpected the first few times it happened. Okay. So we're driving. It's super early, kind of half asleep, foggy out. And she looks over and all of a sudden just goes, moo. I'm like, oh gosh. Okay. And then she looks back. She goes, oh, that's a skinny cow. So I look over. It's a horse. So we have a toddler, and weirdly, that's not the only reason I spend a lot of time talking about farm animals. Which leads me to this question. Are you the chicken, or are you the pig? I don't know where he's going with this, but I can tell you right now, I don't like it. So we're just going to pretend we're Southern Baptists and not respond at all. Everybody do your library impersonation, and shh. <laughs> In a bacon and egg breakfast, do you know what the difference is between the chicken and the pig? The chicken was involved. The pig was committed. In the kingdom of God, in your relationship with and pursuit of Jesus, are you the chicken or are you the pig? I should hold on to that question. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Last week, we celebrated our 25th anniversary outside in a tent. That was cool, right? Super hot, did service outside. This week, nice and cool, do it back inside with the AC. We planned that. But since we're back inside together, we're jumping back into our series through the book of Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Uh, but since we were off for a week, I want to take a minute before we get into our text to go through a little reminder of what we talked about before that. So previously on the book of Hebrews, we talked a lot about blood. So the Old Testament is a really bloody book because the Old Covenant is built on a sacrificial system where they would slaughter animals and they would use their blood as an atoning sacrifice for their sins to delay the wrath of God. And there's a lot, there's a lot of blood Okay, so over the course of about a thousand years, they would have slaughtered over a million animals. The typical two animals that they used primarily were a bull and a goat. A bull would net you between one and two gallons of blood. A goat would get you about a quart. So you multiply that by a million. The old covenant is set on a sea of blood. In fact, during the Passover, they would actually dig a trough from the temple all the way down to the Kidron Valley just to drain the blood from all the sacrifices. The Old Covenant is full of blood. 
But it's not just full of blood, it's actually founded on blood. So when Moses received the law and this new covenant with the people, he presents it to the people. They slaughtered a bunch of bulls and goats, they drained their blood into bowls, and then they doused the altar, the scroll, and the people. Okay? Like everything was dripping in blood. Can we be real? Like that's a weird day at church. <laughs> what did you guys do last week? Well, we got set apart as the chosen people of God, and then everybody took a literal bloodbath. You want to come next week? You know, I think uh, I'm good. I'm going to be busy forever. Right, we hear that. And some part of us is like cringy a little bit. Like, that's weird, and I don't really like it. I don't think I want to do that, because just no thank you. Because blood's gross. I don't want to touch it. But what happens so often in the modern church is we have this really bad habit of treating the traditions and the teachings of God flippantly. And then we wonder why there's not more devotion, more commitment. But the problem is with most people, we treat ourselves way too seriously and we take God way too lightly. Now, let me be clear. I am not suggesting we douse things in blood. What I am suggesting is the people that were there who entered into the covenant through this soaking in blood understood how significant that covenant was. See, this ritual was designed to teach, to remind, and to reinforce to us over and over again a truth that we cannot afford to forget, and that is that sin brings and demands death, right? Because why does it have to be blood? Like, that's not sanitary. We have science now. We know there's like diseases and we don't, shouldn't, nope. Why blood? Because life is in the blood. And so nothing reinforces more clearly the penalty and cost of sin than the shedding of blood. See, the covenant that we enter into with God is not something that we can afford to take lightly. It is a matter of life and death. And that leads us to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the first question is, what are the heavenly things being talked about here? Well, in the Old Testament, they used the blood of sacrificial animals to cleanse the sanctuary from defilement so that it could be a place of worship. And this ritual cleansing made the tent an acceptable dwelling place for God. But all of that was designed to be foreshadowing of something greater. See, God has this thing where He likes to teach and show us things through images. He likes to use pictures. So if you look at just the parables of Jesus, for example, you see so many images. Light, water, bread, seed, shepherds, gates, doors, all physical pictures that we can see to help us understand greater spiritual realities that we can't. See, the purpose of these rituals of sacrifice and purification is not about the ritual, but it's meant to teach us a greater truth. In the Old Testament, the sanctuary that needed purification was a tent. After the New Testament, the sanctuary that needs purification is you and me. 
But for this purification, the blood of bulls and goats will not suffice because the purification that we need is not external, it's internal. It's not surface level appearance only. It is a purification that needs to penetrate down to the depths and core of our heart. So we need a greater sacrifice. The holy things that the author's talking about, that's us. The greater sacrifice that we need, that's Jesus. It is the sacrifice of Jesus that cleanses us so that we can be the dwelling place of God. It is the blood of Jesus that purifies us so that the Spirit of God can dwell within us and we can be His sanctuary. As John says in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Or Ephesians 2, 22 says we are being built together as the dwelling place for God. We are purified by the blood of Jesus, made acceptable before God through the blood of Jesus. No longer enemies, no longer slaves, no longer objects of wrath because of the blood of Jesus. And that blood, it represents his life. And the shedding of that blood is the symbol of Jesus pouring his life out so that through his death, we could have life in him. The blood of bulls and goats made the Israelites the people of God. The blood of Jesus makes us the children of God. For just as the old covenant was established with blood and death, so the new covenant is established with blood and death. For it is by the blood of Jesus that we were bought from our sins. It is by the blood of Jesus that we are made alive, by the blood of Jesus that, are, that we are purified and made right before God. And it is through his sacrifice. And because of his sacrifice, we have greater access to God. See, the people of God in the Old Testament, they couldn't go into the presence of God. They couldn't know God personally. He was amongst them, but he was not really with them. But now, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have direct access to God. We can go before him and know him on a much more intimate level. And we can worship him in a way that even the angels cannot. See, the angels, they call God holy. We call him Father. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The second thing we have through the sacrifice of Jesus is greater representation. We don't have some old dude that we've never met in fancy flowing robes slaughtering farm animals on our behalf. Our high priest is not some religious dude who's socially disconnected, trying to offer sacrifices for repentance for sins he doesn't understand because he spent his whole life in an ivory tower, disconnected and isolated from the world to protect his ceremonial cleanliness. Our high priest understands. He knows our suffering. He knows our struggle. And what is more, he is sympathetic towards them. Our high priest doesn't go into some shadow temple that's modeled after the real thing. He goes into heaven itself, sits at the right hand of God, and intercedes directly to God on our behalf. Because in Jesus, we have a cosmic attorney 
who makes our defense for us, who speaks for us, who works for us. Church, the great comfort that we have is that the Jesus who died on the cross for our sin rose again. And the Jesus who rose sits at the right hand of God. And the Jesus who sits at the right hand of God is constantly advocating for us. So in your imperfection, in my imperfection and failure and sin, in our shortcomings, we don't have to worry. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to fear because Jesus is in heaven speaking on our behalf. So we can have peace in imperfection because Jesus has us covered. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to, he would have, to have suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To the old ways, they had to repeat the sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats was by its very nature insufficient to do what needed done. It could not cover what we needed to cover. You see, the blood of bulls and goats, think of it like this. It's your life has a ledger. It contains all your debt. And the blood of bulls and goats, that's like trying to pay your mortgage your, on your house, but you only have enough to pay the interest. You're not touching the principal. You're not reducing the debt, right? You're just paying the interest over and over again. And the great thing about doing that is it's sort of like running on a treadmill. You can do it forever, but you're never going to get anywhere. Because the sacrifice of bulls and goats was not sufficient to reduce the debt that we had because of sin. So what it does is it was barely enough to postpone the bank from coming and foreclosing on your home. That's what the blood of bulls and goats could do. It could delay foreclosure, but not reduce, not remove debt. So Jesus comes along with a one-time lump sum payment. And he pays off your mortgage. He pays off all the debt that you owe. So there's no more interest. There's no more principal. There's no more mortgage. There's no more payments that need to be made. There's no additional sacrifices that were required. No more extra work that has to be done in order to fully activate the gift that Jesus has given. It is done. It is covered. It is paid for. And the debt is gone. Jesus doesn't have to repeat that sacrifice. He doesn't have to do anything else with it because the sacrifice of Jesus is so monumentally sufficient that it completely covers the debt that we have and sets us free from it. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus was not involved in your salvation. He was committed to it. 
He bore our sins. He paid our price. He shed his blood to purify us so that we could have life in him. So your life is a ledger. And in that ledger goes every mistake, every sin, every shortcoming and failure, every wrong thing you did, said, or thought, and every godly thing you didn't do, say, or think. All of that gets added to the account of your life and adds to the debt that you owe. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, no matter how much you work for it, you try to just be this great, amazing person who does all this godly stuff, and man, you help your neighbor bring in their groceries. I mean, yay, you. It doesn't matter because the debt that you owe, you could not hope to repay even if you lived a thousand lifetimes. Each and every one of us has this massive ledger of debt because of sin, and on the top of that file, it reads, unable to pay. So Jesus comes along, and he stamps that file in big, bold, red letters, inked in his blood, paid in full. But the thing that we have to understand, the thing that's so easy to overlook is that when Jesus paid for that sin, he paid for all of your sin. From the moment you drew your first breath to the last breath that you take, Jesus paid for all sin. He put all sin away by the sacrifice of himself. What that means is that the sin that you commit tomorrow, you don't have to dive into the lake of guilt and shame and swim in that wondering and worrying, oh no, what if that was the sin that broke it? What if that was the sin that God says, I'm done with you? What if that was the one that's too far and now he's mad at me? Or what if I don't get a chance to repent for that before I die and then I can't be saved? You don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to carry that struggle because here's the thing, the sin that you commit to tomorrow, Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. The sin that you commit 20 years from now, Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. The entirety of your life, of every sin, was added up in that ledger, and Jesus stamped that ledger forgiven. So rather than turning to guilt and shame in the awareness of our sin, we can turn to gratitude for the overwhelming grace of God. And before we twist that too far, oh, Jesus already paid for my sins, so I'll just keep doing what I want, right? <laughs> no. Paul says in Romans, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Jesus paid our debt. He paid it in full. That does not give us the excuse to just continue to sin. If we belong to him, we will not desire the things that hurt him, the things that bother him. We will desire obedience in pursuit of him. But it gets better. When Jesus stamps your file forgiven, there is no court of appeals. There is no higher judge 
There is no one that outrules or can outrank him. There is no one who can overturn the decision that Jesus makes. The great comfort and peace we have is that Jesus who died on the cross out of his great love for us to bear our sin and to pay our price is the ultimate judge of the universe. So when Jesus declares that your sins are forgiven, they are emphatically, unquestionably, unrevocably forgiven. And nothing and no one can change that because there is no authority greater than the Jesus who died for you. Verse 27. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The third thing we get through the sacrifice of Jesus is greater hope. See, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a basin filled with blood into the sanctuary to make an atoning sacrifice, an atoning offering for sin. And the people would gather around and they would watch. And when he went inside, they would wait and hold their breath. And when he came out, they let out a collective sigh of relief because seeing him come out was evidence that God approved of the offering he made on their behalf. And so when they saw him come out, this was a cause for joyous celebration because it meant for that time their sin had been covered. Here's my question. How do we know that Jesus covers our sins? How do we know that the sacrifice that Jesus made is valid? Right? He makes the claims, right? He gives us these great, incredible promises. But how do we know that that's acceptable before God? How do we know that we can trust that? All right, so let's say I come to you, and I tell you, hey, uh, there's this thing called sin, and that's bad. You do it. That's not good. And because you do it, you have to die. Because the penalty for the sin that you commit is death. That's the bad news. Good news is, I like you. I think your shirt's cool. So I'm going to die for you. Okay, because you your sin means you got to die, but I'm going to die in your place. And that way, you can continue to live and have life. So I run out into 501 and just, <laughs> he go. How do you know that's valid? Are your sins covered? Like, how would you trust it? Place your confidence in it. Rely on it. Because you would have no way of knowing if that was a, a genuine, gracious gift or if I was just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It would take a sign. It would take something happening that cannot happen to validate the claims that I made, right? It would take a miracle. In order for you to trust it, to really know that that counted, you would need to see a miracle. Like the resurrection. The empty tomb is the declaration of God that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. The empty tomb is the evidence that everything that Jesus said is true and all the promises he made are valid. Because Jesus didn't just claim to be a savior. Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. And we 
can have faith in the promises of Jesus because the tomb is empty. We can have the assurance of our salvation because the tomb is empty. We can have hope in times of hardship because the tomb is empty. We can have joy and peace even in the struggles and storms of life because the tomb is empty. We can in all things be of great cheer and courage because the tomb is empty. Church, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything that we believe stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. And because that tomb is empty, we have life. Because that tomb is empty, our sins are forgiven. But you notice what it says in the text. Jesus bore the sins of many. Notice how it doesn't say all. Are you saying that Jesus didn't die for all people's sins? Yes, I am saying that. How could you say that? Because the Bible does all the time. If Jesus bears your sins, your sins are forgiven. If your sins are forgiven, you are saved. So if Jesus bears the sins of everyone, then everyone will be saved. And over and over and over and a couple more overs down the road, the Bible tells us they're not. So who is saved by the sacrifice of Jesus? Those who are covered by Jesus are those who belong to Jesus. All right, yeah, cool. But like, how do you know who's who? Well, the author tells us. Verse 28. Unlike the high priest, when Jesus returns, it's not to deal with sin again. It is to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who belong to to Jesus are those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus. They're eagerly waiting for Jesus because they've placed their hope in him, because they've placed their confidence, their trust for salvation in him. They're waiting eagerly for Jesus because they have placed their faith in him. So the question that I have for you, church, is have you placed your faith in Jesus? And before you respond... Let me clarify. Not in performance. Not in Bible study or religious activity. Not in a promise to do better and to try harder. Not in being a good person and living a good life and doing good things and putting out good vibes into the universe and always voting Republican. Have you put your faith in Jesus. What that means is have you come to Jesus not proving to him why he should save you, not giving him your spiritual resume for what you've done to earn that way in or to make him feel a little bit better about the deal. Have you come to Jesus in full humility, thrown yourself at his feet in complete surrender and pleaded with him to do what only he can do? Have you come to Jesus asking him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? 
Owning the fact that you're not going to be good enough. Owning the fact that you don't deserve it. Owning the fact that you cannot ever be worthy of it. So have you come to Jesus like the thief on the cross saying, just please remember me when you enter your father's house? That's faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It's turning to Jesus. It's relying on Jesus and depending on Jesus. It is putting every ounce of hope you have exclusively in him, not trying to underscore it with your own work and effort. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Those who belong to Jesus are those who have placed their hope and their faith in him. It's our hope. It's not in this life. It's not in ourselves. It's not in this world. Our hope is in Jesus, who bore our sins and paid our price. Our hope is in Jesus, who died on the cross for us and conquered the grave. Our hope is in the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Our hope is in Jesus who returns to bring us into eternity with him. Our hope exists because Jesus shed his blood for us. Because Jesus was not involved in your salvation. He was committed to it. He shed his blood for it, poured out his life for it so that in him you could live. So church, what are you going to do with that life? The life, the new life that Jesus gave you, what are you going to do with it? So when you belong to Jesus, when you surrender yourself to Jesus, what that means is from that moment to the day you die in this world, every breath you take belongs to him. Every ounce of energy you have belongs to him. Every dollar in your bank account belongs to him. Every word that leaves your mouth belongs to him. If you've surrendered yourself to Jesus, all of your time belongs to Jesus. All of your talent belongs to Jesus. All of your treasure, it belongs to Jesus. Because if you have surrendered to Jesus, you are his. And none of this is yours. So what are you doing with the life that Jesus gave you? With the breath that he sustains you with? He was committed to your life. Are you committed to his? The question that each and every one of us should ask in response to the gift that Jesus has given us is what am I doing with this? Am I living for Jesus? Am I growing in Jesus? Or am I just trying to be some casual acquaintance sitting on the side? The saddest truth that many Christians don't understand is there are no spectators in the kingdom of God. Either you belong to him or you don't. And those who belong to Jesus live for Jesus. Because how could we not? 
with the gift that we have been given by Jesus. How could we not? He laid down his life. God bled for us so that we could be washed in his blood, so that we could be rescued from death, so that we could have eternal life and joy and hope in him, so that death would never scare us again, so that we wouldn't have to live in guilt and shame and fear because we have this unbelievable, unconquerable grace in the love of God. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus because of the love of Jesus. How could we do anything less than give him everything that we have? Are you the chicken or are you the pig? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We worship you because you are worthy of all praise. And God, reveal to us the walls that we've placed in our hearts to keep you isolated. The ways in which we try to compartmentalize our relationship with you and just tear them down. God, I pray that you would mold each and every one of us like clay into what you would have us be. And that we would not resist you, but that we would rejoice in being molded in a way that we could be useful to you in this life. That we would serve you with every breath, that we would love you with every beat of our heart and that we would be the people who are eagerly awaiting your return. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.